Tyler S. O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangest. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone being money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports Bazaar. Yeah, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> of rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperado. So like the Sports Bazaar audience. Yeah. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. Inept at best and corrupt at worst. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar and what could be, at least for our main season, our last two-parter. We should wrap this up in two episodes. In two episodes. And it should be, they'll take us out for the year. So, for the year. Apart from your very exciting summer series, are we allowed to mention that at this Well, stage? the members know, but for the general ah. population, we're, we're <laughs> going to finish up November, around November 27 for our normal episodes. Yes. Just for a break over summer, yeah. there'll still be more bonus episodes for the members. So if you're not a member, well, you can join up. But then also I'm happy to announce we're going to have a bunch of interviews I'm going to do over summer, which I've recorded some already. They're interesting people. Do you need any help writing those? Or do you want me to <laughs> Everyone knows that you secretly write the scripts. Yeah. Everyone knows this. And good uh, luck on your own. It'd be good to see, you know, if you can just step up and take yeah. the reins. It's a lot of work. I hadn't realised how much work it is. This is our main game, right? Yes, and this is one of the ones that was voted for by the members. We put up this one and the Malice at the Palace, which is the brawl in the NBA, and this just beat it. It it went down to the wire. It did a very close poll. I think it was like three votes in the end separated them. So we're doing Keith Miller, the famous Australian cricketer. Yes. If you're not from Australia or... England or England know all or about India, him. one of the cricket nations. He is one of the great characters of all time, despite the cricket was on top of his cricket. So on and off the field. On and off larger the field. Larger than life. Boy, uh, left a, a trail. <laughs> trail of destruction. <laughs> destruction and wonder. Let's kick off. Keith Ross Miller was born on the 28th of November 1919. So the war's yeah, just... Post-First World Baby. Post-world, yeah, he, he's post-world. a First World War baby boomer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And he's born in the Melbourne suburb of Sunshine, born in Again, Melbourne, Victoria. for anyone who doesn't know, it's ironically named. It is not the, the sunny... Sunshine is just not that. And he was born... He was the youngest of four children, so he had two older brothers and one older sister. Yeah. And he's named Keith Ross Miller because at the time he's being born, Keith Smith and Ross Smith who were famous aviators, were halfway through their flight, the first ever flight from London to Australia um, that was ever completed, which was a record. It took them 27 days and 20 hours. And so his parents decided to name him after both of them, Keith and Ross, and so they named him Keith Ross Miller. Um, Luckily the plane made it. (laughs) 
would be a, a haunting thing to no, be named the rest right. of your life. Yeah, you know who you're named after? Those dead pilots. <laughs> that did, those failures that didn't make it. But they did make it. Now, the three Miller boys all played Australian rules football in the winter. Yep. And they would then play cricket in the summer. His yep. dad was a great cricketer, not like a great club cricketer. So he taught all the boys how to bat, very good on technique. And they all loved Bill Ponsford, who was a famous Absolutely. Batsman. They stand at the Melbourne Cricket Ground named after yes. You'd have spent many a day in the Pontford stand. I have. <laughs> As I, have I. It's uh, my natural habitat. We need to point out too that at that time in Australia, that was how boys played sport. Cricket in the summer, yeah. football, whatever code, in the winter. Yeah. And that was it. There was just nothing else on the table. No, no other sports. In the southern states, you played Australian rules football. In yeah. the northern states, you played rugby league. And the football sports were seen as... They began to keep cricketers Cricketers fit. healthy. In the... <laughs> the cricketers never got fit until about no, the 2000s, right. but oh, anyway. Hold on, Booney. So at the age of seven, they moved to Elstonwick, which is in Melbourne southwest, much more inner city. Yes. It was a street called Denver Crescent, and the neighbours kept complaining because he would get his sister's stocking, put a cricket ball in it, tie the stocking to the roof, and then just use it, hit all the ball day. all day, right? So he was obsessed with with cricket, the whole family was. Yeah. So he was doing that sort of thing. The neighbours would complain about the noise. He had a neighbour that whenever they hit a ball over the fence would pinch the ball and never give it back. They reckon he had like a thousand balls <laughs> from these boys playing in the backyard. Now he's very small for his really? age. Like he's well below. Everyone comments on him being just a really small kid. Okay. Um, and this kind of makes him have to focus when he plays cricket on his technique because right. he's got no real strength. He's, he's up against much bigger boys. He needs uh, to marshal all his skill. Skill, yeah, it's all skill. And even bowling, he's having to like bowl spin. He's just Crikey. not big enough to have any impact on the game. Loves football but too small to really have any impact. So this is what he grows up like. At the age of 12, he thought that it would be better for him to become a jockey and starts training to be a jockey. Really? Yeah, so he's going to Caulfield race course, training on horses. He goes to the Melbourne Cup, which is, you know, the big race yes. in Melbourne, as you know. He's awed by that and thinks, given my height and weight, a jockey is a career for me. So he's really got himself set on doing something in sport. He loves his sports so mad. This is it. Yeah. yeah. And he thinks cricket's beyond me. I'm not going to be big enough and football's definitely beyond me. But he still plays them, but he realizes sure. he's not going to make it to the top. He says one of the reasons he thinks he wasn't that big. He starts to wonder at the age of 12, the fact that he started smoking <laughs> is stunting his growth. <laughs> wow. So he's at that age. Did he smoke around the house, like at the table? I think in front he will. Of the parents? No, he said it was sneaky. He said he'd started smoking from about the age of 10. He smoked like a chimney. <laughs> it's just it's a different age. There it is. And well, I think they were still suggesting smoking was good for you. I don't, yeah, this is that? sort of, you know, this is in the 1920s, 1930s, so it's still yeah. well before. This is Keith. He said, sometimes one of my elders would catch me and warn me that it would stump my growth. I took no notice, he said. <laughs> then I smoked my first cigar and was sick for three days. I've never smoked since. So he stopped okay. smoking. Thing. But he still was very small and he was also relatively weak for Boise's age. Sure. So he didn't have a lot going for him. He went to Elston State School, but he managed to get into Melbourne High, which is a 
as you know, is select entry school. Sure. So you have to get very good marks to get into it. So he was obviously bright. Yep. And this becomes interesting for him because at Melbourne High School, his maths teacher and his cricket teacher is f- the former Australian captain, Bill Woodfull, who was a great player, sure. captain of Australia in cricket, yes. had only just retired. So he suddenly got the ex-captain of Australia the, coaching him. Coaching him. And he, Woodfull was also captain of the Carlton Cricket Club and the state of Victoria too. So, um, and only just left playing for Australia. So it's pretty good. Handyman to have. Handyman. Uh, access to, yeah. Also, Woodfull had been Ponsford's batting partner. This was sort of a hero worship thing for Miller. Like sure. he was someone who knew it. So Miller, age 14, he is selected for the school's first 11 in cricket. In his first game, he scores 44. And so it's obvious he's got all the raw talent in a technique yeah. sense, right? Everyone starts to say, this kid's actually, despite his size, is, is pretty good. Mm. Um, the captain of his school cricket team was a guy called Keith Bluey Truscott, who would you would know. Right? He went on to play for the Melbourne Football Club, played cricket at quite a high level. He went on in the war, World War II. He was a fighter pilot. He was an ace. He had 20 confirmed victories and five unconfirmed victories that he'd later be killed while flying during the war. Yes. Comes to impact Keith. All these people he grew up with, a lot of them don't make it through World War II. And we'll yep. get more into that as his outlook on life. <laughs> Keith is playing cricket, football, and is training to be a jockey. So in, <laughs> <laughs> so in year uh, nine, in 1934, he doesn't pass a single one of his eight <laughs> subjects at school. <laughs> English, algebra, geometry. All fails, physics he fails, chemistry fails, drawing, history and French. His average mark was 25%. He scored a zero in his final term exam in geometry. which Zero? Yeah, which Woodfall, who was his teacher, was furious with him. Yeah. He finished bottom of his class of 40 students and was forced to repeat the year. Okay. Now, Keith is, by this point, he's given up the smoking, but he <laughs> loves socializing, hanging out. He's yeah. a gregarious guy, right? Young kid, 14, but he's everyone sort of likes sure. him. He's charismatic. Miller's captain though, Keith Truscott, Bluey Truscott, takes him for a trial for local club side St Kilda at the start of the 34-35 season in cricket, this is. Now cricket, you got to remember, at this point, cricket at a club level in Australia, incredibly strong. Yes. There wasn't this global sport as much. So no. you played for the club. Then you hope to get into the state team for Victoria or New South Wales or whatever, into Sheffield Shield it was called, and then you hope to get into international. And so the local media covered the club. Absolutely. In every club you usually had a couple of former internationals Mm. or Victorian state players, so it was a real tough thing to get into. Keith Truscott takes him down, Blue Truscott takes him down, Miller couldn't get into any of the five teams. So they had five senior teams from the first through the fifth. He couldn't cut it in any of them. And then one day at the Nets, he's bowling to one of the best batsmen at St Kilda and the batsman gets frustrated and said, son, take that ball and hand it to someone who can bowl because he was so bad at bowling. (laughs) And Keith said, I had to point out to this exasperated senior that there was no one around beside the two of us. (laughs) He said, frankly, I did not blame him for that time. I had no idea how to bowl. And so he basically is done at St Kilda before he even starts. He's about 15, 14, 15 at this point. He joins a local sub-district cricket, which is much lower level, Elstonwick. He doesn't get to bat or bowl in his first match. And then he's dropped for the second match because they say he's a poor fielder. 
This is not good. So this is not He's good. He's not off to a flyer. So luckily for him, there's a former Victorian State player called Huey Carroll who becomes a bit of a mentor to Miller. And he sees Miller's talent at one game and thinks, I actually think this kid could be good. Yeah. I actually think he's got something to him. So he says, come to South Melbourne, which is a big, big rival of St. Yeah. Kilda's. At South Melbourne, Miller meets a guy called Ian Johnson and another guy called Lindsay Hassett, who both go on to become his Australian yeah. captains for him later in his life. And also at the club was Laurie Nash, who was a champion footballer, whose name you would know. He, yes. He's in the Hall of Fame for football. He played test cricket against South Africa and he was a really good uh, Aussie rules player. So he had these amazing sports people around him. Sure. Miller scores 12 not out on debut for South Melbourne, but observers feel that he's not strong enough. And Hugh Carroll, his mentor and the club coach, says he was so small he had to be careful not to tread on him. Uh, his technique is so good that they all think there's something here, but they're all like he can't hit sixes, he can't hit to the boundary very much. There's no big hits. If you're not a cricket fan and you maybe get baseball, it's all singles, not He's not hitting not home runs, right? Like he's not a power hitter. Mm. They measure him and they realise he's so short, they actually give him a cut-down bat. So they basically give him a much smaller yeah. bat. He's mucking around bowling spin. They get him to spot bowl really slow to get accuracy. He wants to bowl fast, but they're like, no, nah, you just you <laughs> can't need to get your – you Talking you're him not, out of it. You're just not strong enough. Jeez. So he's playing for them and he's like – you know, he's going okay, but he's young. They see him as a future prospect. And in South Melbourne's final game of the 34-35 season, he plays against Carlton. And that's the club that Bill Woodfall, his uh, maths teacher yes. and former Australian captain, he captains Carlton. And Keith decides, well, I'm keen to do well against his sure. side to at least impress him because I've just failed year nine. He's not <laughs> happy with me. I want to show him that I can at least. i got a zero. I don't want to duck out here. Yeah, I can at least play cricket. South Melbourne bat first and they collapse. At one stage, they're five wickets for six runs, which, yeah. you know, you, it, for those uninitiated, you're trying, to, you're trying to get between two to 400 runs in a test inning. <laughs> not, so being five for six, it's so bad that the reporter at the ground, a guy called Percy Millard, he phones the Melbourne Herald who he works for and says, send a photographer down. We're about to see one of the lowest scores in club cricket in history. Barely anyone gets below 50 in club cricket sure. as a team. So they're all like, this is on. This is an abject disaster. Miller, finally, it's his turn to bat. South Melbourne have had a bit of a recovery. They're now five for 32 runs. Still pretty bad. Though. Miller comes out and standing at mid-off very close in fielding is his maths teacher, Woodfall. <laughs> and he's like, I could just tell Woodfall's like, I'm going to get this kid out. We've got to get him out. So there's this huge amount of pressure on him. Three more wickets fall. Miller is still in. South reach nine for 76. Miller is on 18, not out. So he's resurrected them a bit to sure. look okay. And but it's a rear guard action. It's a rear guard action. It's terrible. A guy called Snowy Davidson, which is a great name. No one's called Snowy <laughs> nah, anymore. Snowy's a great nickname. Yeah. Uh, he joins him and he's a bowler. So he can't bat at all. He's uh, just there to make up the numbers. He's the last sure. wicket. The spectators are watching going, there's this undersized tiny kid whose batting pads come up to his hips <laughs> with a with cut, a cut down, down bat and there's this guy who cannot bat at all and they are in real trouble. They managed to make a partnership of 65 in 95 minutes, almost all of them uh, Miller's runs. They yeah. lift south to a more respect to 141 and finally Miller goes out 
the entire crowd, he scored 61 runs, the entire crowd rises as he strolls off and a photographer then takes a photo of this moment and they all applaud because it's just, the, it's not that it's the highest score ever, but it's just the pressure he was under, how little he is, yeah. the unlikeliness, to, he saved the face of the club. Yeah. Miller, the reporter, wrote, a Ponsford in miniature describes Miller. He has all the strokes, courage and artistry. All he needs, apart from experience, is power in his shots, particularly his drives. Running between the wickets, Miller looked all legs and pads. His bat is the smallest in the district. <laughs> the baby the next day puts a photo of his bat next to a normal size bat to show how small it is. <laughs> he continued writing, Discovered and coached by Huey Carroll, Miller, who possesses cricket brains and temperament, had developed to the extent that already the Southerners acclaim him as a future test batsman for Australia. So this is huge praise. Okay. Carlton go on and win the next Saturday mm-hmm. when they get their turn to bat. But they present uh, Miller with a silver egg cup for sterling performance, which is rare for the opposition to give you that. Yeah, absolutely. And Woodfull presents it to him in algebra class. <laughs> <laughs> which, to make him turn up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the next year he does pull himself together academically and you, the second year, time he does year nine, mm. he doesn't shoot the lights out but he's okay. Yep. And in year 10, he does okay too. So he's, he starts to get his academic stuff underneath. But at 17 years of age, Miller is he's 150 centimetres tall or 4.9 feet. Pretty short. Oh, yeah. Less than five foot tall. It's not good. Um, and he's 17. So this is the one thing that everyone thinks is probably... stop him being, taking his place at the top of Yeah. At 17 years of age, he suddenly has a huge growth spurt. Hello. He grows 28 centimetres or, or 11 inches in one year. How is that? He goes from being under five foot, 4.9 feet to 6.1 feet tall or 185 centimetres. So, so he ends up about six foot two. Now you got to remember in 1930, six foot two is tall. It's big. Nowadays yeah. it's like still pretty tall. But yeah, then, it's, no, that then was a it's, big guy. you're a big guy, right? Miller said this thwarted his career as a jockey. This <laughs> It's a sad moment. Because suddenly he's like gone from yeah. being the smallest guy at school to one of the biggest, Yeah, right? <laughs> Several things happened for Miller with this. So one is, which is kind of interesting in psychology, Throughout his entire life, he's grown up to the age of 17 being the underdog and the small one. Yes. The one boy's picked on occasionally. The, so he always has this underdog, sm- almost small man syndrome. Yeah, and street smarts. And he, he had to be survive and, yeah. and be quick on his wits and, and all of the stuff that you need. And charm. When and you have no natural advantage. Ex- exactly. And his batting is flawless in a technique sense. His bowling, he's learned to bowl without the raw, you know, if you just have raw power, you probably don't need to oh learn all that technique. But he's learned all that. But now he's suddenly in a six foot one frame and he's mm. filling out. He also suddenly goes from being like the little guy to his tall guy and he is, and he's described all through the, the contemporary records throughout his career, as being incredibly good looking. So like they yeah. call him a mat, 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 matinee look, oh, they say. They call him oh, the Errol Flynn of cricket. They call him the Casanova of the crease. 
<laughs> women are just they lose their mind. They lose their minds. He's like full, like almost Beatles mania before yeah. there's the Beatles, right? So the phrase I like is a good-looking rooster. A <laughs> good-looking rooster. <laughs> he was and, and charming to boot. So he's got these incredible movie star looks. looks. Had a charming, Chari- and charismatic, charismatic persona. Yeah. He, he is the complete package. He's a complete package. Like he's like, it's every, guys want to hang out with him and muck yeah. around with him. Girls Women want to be with him. Like he's just anywhere he goes, he's just the center of attention. The minute he walks, and there's in. only a few of us who can <laughs> say, who can say that. You know what I mean? I don't know what you mean. It's definitely not me. I know you do, but I don't. Suddenly, with his increased height and weight and, and looks and everything going in, you know he's begins to play football and he suddenly can be physical and aggressive. Yeah. So he goes from being like hidden in the back pocket to suddenly like mm. a really good footballer. And suddenly his cricket strokes are like huge. He's yeah. hitting sixes, he's hitting fours. He's got all the technique. Thumping boundaries. But now he has huge power. And so he becomes so good. This growth spurt shows a lot of things. He start while still at school, he's picked for Victoria's second 11, so their second team. Yes. Um, so he's representing the state. At the same time, he is... With this growth spurt, in 1936, he's voted Melbourne High's sports champion. Uh, he's got a batting average of 86. He had 13 wickets for the season. He's suddenly looking quite good. Woodfull writes in the school magazine, The Unicorn, Miller has test possibilities. Yeah, he As in he could play That's for Australia. Great. Is he bowling fast yet? No, he's barely bowling. He's, right. He bowls very sparingly. He's not a bowler. He's a batsman at this stage. Right. Right. So, and no one thinks of him ever being a bowler at this stage. Mm. This is a huge thing that Woodfall says he could play test cricket. This really shows, sure. puts him on the radar. But he also decides that he's had enough of school and at the end of year 10 he quits. Um, oh, who's on the verge of academic, <laughs> academic greatness? <laughs> and I, it's partly this is his personality. Also, back then a lot of people, they just didn't, finishing school wasn't as big a, a deal. deal, you know. Um, so he goes and works for a company called uh, Vacuum Oil Co., which is a forerunner to mobile oil. He's a clerk. He's basically working in finance and accounting departments, stamping and organising invoices, incredibly yep. boring work. Yet the reason he goes there is they agree that they'll accommodate all his first-class cricket. Right. They see him as a future star. Now his boss, his manager, is a guy called Percy Beams, who is also a state cricketer. And yes. played football for Melbourne, and you would know his name as there is a Percy Beams bar. Correct at the Melbourne Football Club I in have, the members. You would have. have grown, I'm going. Where do I know that? It's name? a great bar, Percy Beams bar. Absolutely, it's a great bar. It's, it's on the third level, looking down on everything. It's so, fantastic. So Percy Beams is. is you know a, what that bar's full of private school kids. Yeah, the disappointing son. <laughs> yeah, someone at, like captains of industry have got a number of kids. Yeah, and uh, most of them would have gone on to. Yeah, take over the business, but then you've got the one Sony, just <laughs> likes a drink. Yeah, like spend the money and goes and goes to the footy. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's the Percy Beams bar. That's a lot of my big friends. hello to everyone down there. <laughs> by the way, they're um, pretty much all my look friends. Look forward to a warm welcome next time I'm yeah, there. Yeah, I'd say. Um, so Percy Beams, who plays for Melbourne Football Club and plays for Victorian cricket, he's his new boss. So he's got this enormous leeway to like if he needs to go and play cricket for a week or training yeah. or whatever. It's like fine. Um, you got to remember, cricket and football don't pay any money at this point, so you sure. need a job. So in 1937 and the 38 season, still playing for the Victorian second uh, 11, and he has an innings of 181 runs against Tasmania, which leads to his promotion. It has to be. He's 18 years old to play for Victoria. Brilliant. 
In his fourth match, he scores 108 against South Australia, which some of the best test match bowlers were playing for them. Yes. Bradman is playing in the same game and had scored 267. So Don Bradman, for those that don't know, not cricket fans, the Babe Ruth of cricket, the, gr- the, the Michael Jordan of to ever play the game. And arguably, and I'm seeing it like even American people have argued this in things, if you look at his stats, he is further ahead of all his contemporaries and all, all current players on statistically more than Jordan was, yeah. more than LeBron is, more than Babe Ruth was. So his batting record is famously just below 100, 100 runs a game. The next is normally in like the fifties. Yeah, like it's, he, it's he's a, yeah, he's double. Like he's so Don Bradman's playing in this match. So this is where Miller and Bradman sort of see each other for the first time, and Bradman's impressed with Miller as a batsman, and so they start to see him as a this kid could play for sure. Australia. At the same time, he's playing football for Brighton Football Club in the Victorian Football Association, and he's a full back now in defence. He's a big defender. Yeah. At one game in 1940, he's told that the coach and selectors of the VFL club, which is the higher standard, sure. of the St Kilda Football Club are going to be there to assess the team and see if they can poach anyone from Brighton. And so this was the chance to impress and yes. potentially go to the big leagues of the VFL. The problem is that Miller is playing full back and he's going to be playing against the greatest forward of the era and arguably the greatest full forward of all time in Australian football, Bob Pratt. Oh, wow. And Bob Pratt is, if you don't like, not an Australian uh, football player, superstar, superstar you know. Like a Mount Rushmore uh, of goal kickers. Yeah, people often say he's the greatest goal kicker of all time yeah. if, you know, compare it to all the other, you know, given the time he played. He played for South Melbourne, stuff. didn't he? Pratt. He went on to play for South Melbourne, yes. yeah, but at this stage he was playing for Coburg. And so everyone says to Miller, what a shame, you know, you got St Kilda scouts looking at you, but you're yeah. up against Bob Oh, well, not your day. Miller goes on to hold Pratt to one goal. Now, Pratt often kicks like That's 10 plus, right, yeah, and wins man of the match, and St Kilda sign him on the spot. Jesus. So Miller has gone in two years to playing for Victoria in cricket yeah. and playing for in the VFL for St Kilda, and so he's a That's dual. interesting. I didn't realise, so, you know, the – he had the football question yeah. hanging over his head too. Did he ever seriously? Yeah, he was very good. Yeah, not cricket and football. Well, at the time you could play you both. Could play it both. wasn't like a choice like it is now. I mean, it, it would have probably come to a head if he'd started playing for Australia yeah, in yeah. cricket yeah. and had to tour. But we'll see how that all works out. Yeah? Okay. But at this stage, you can play both. Sure. Right. Um, his first match for St Kilda in the big leagues is against Carlton. They put him on the halfback flank in defence against a hard-hitting player who was a star. Uh, he's from WA, Ron Sox Cooper. Oh. Sox is a great nickname. <laughs> Sox and Snowy. The ball's bounced. Cooper looks at Miller and then punches him in the head as hard as he can. It's a full classic king hit. King hit. Miller yeah. is not looking. It yeah. is. He's heard that this kid held, held Bob Pratt to one goal. Yeah. So he thinks... I'm just going to take him out before yeah. it even starts. I'm not not having that. Miller goes down. He's semi-concussed. Yeah. In these days, they don't have video review or anything. He, this is just... <sighs> no, you're back. You stay out. Miller basically goes off, comes back next week. There's no concussion protocol. <laughs> starts to play okay. The next time St Kilda plays Carlton that year, Miller comes out and he's 
gives no hint to Cooper of his fe- bad feelings from the previous sure. encounter. Shakes his hand, says, G'day, mate, how are you going? The ball bounces and he doesn't hit him. But a minute after, Sox is about to get the ball and Miller hits him so hard with a shoulder bump that Cooper goes down hard, yeah. absolutely floored. A trainer helps him to the forward pocket and he's replaced at quarter time. <laughs> Miller says he found the experience exhilarating. <laughs> he said, I'd never really hit or hurt a player before, but now with my added weight and height, this gave a whole new dimension to me in playing footy and that was a great And it was justified. And this it was, was legitimate. Yeah, it was, it but, wasn't animal. It was, it was a payback situation. Yeah. But this is – he suddenly brings aggression right. to this. Let's tick that box too. He's yeah. suddenly incredibly uh, – opponents suddenly become less likely to target. Miller becomes more confident about retaliating within or without the, the rules <laughs> and becomes known as a very tough hombre. Okay. You don't, if you want to start it with him, fine, but yeah. he'll finish it. So he's sudden, just got everything, this guy. Suddenly he's like and, – and so he ends up with a lot of black eyes and yeah. this and stuff. And they all say he was very tough. There's only one player Miller says he was scared of playing football. And this is how big and imposing he is now. He is one of the yeah. biggest, toughest guys in the entire league. Mm. And it's amazing him because he's gone from within a year, you know, two years being the smallest guy mm. at a junior level to now yeah. he's one of the toughest guys in the yeah, whole top class, league, yeah. right? He says the only person that frightened him was a guy who you know very well who played for Richmond called Jack, Jack Dyer. Dyer. Captain Blood. Captain Blood was his name. Known absolute great player but also uh, brutal. He has fearsome reputation that still to this day yeah. is, everyone is aware yeah. of the toughest bloke who dominated a league during probably its toughest time. Yeah, there were not a lot of rules in these days. You could just hit someone behind Well, the there's blood. Snowy, there's Socks and there's Captain Blood. <laughs> So Miller says one day I went down to pick the ball up and I saw Dyer charging towards me oh, and dear. I thought, oh, no. But fortunately he slipped on the cricket pitch and missed me. <laughs> so there's Miller suddenly playing for Victoria. He's suddenly one of the best players. He's not just a good player. He's one of the better players in the league in football. He's playing for Victoria yeah. and it's all looking very good for him. Can I tell you my favourite Captain Blood story? I reckon we'll do Captain Blood in the future, but this is a great teaser for a lot of people listening who don't know Australian rules football. So he was captain of the Richmond Football Club. and they were Your team. My team. team. They were in the grand final and uh, two players turned up to training that week drunk and he was ca- like captain coach at the time and he's gone in and he's given them an absolute spray, the whole team. Yeah. And he's gone, if I see anyone having a drink this week, I don't care who you are, you're sacked. You're done. Yeah. You will not play. Anyway, he was, I think, a policeman at the time. Yeah. And he went to a pub I uh, drink at called the London Tavern, and he went there at 10 in the morning. Uh, Jack died to have a beer. <laughs> and he walks in and it's not open for trading yet, 11 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. So, But he knows of it. So he goes in the back door, walks in and sees his two best players sitting at the bar drinking. So you know what he did? He snuck out without them seeing him so he didn't have to sack them. <laughs> oh, he just pretended. They played. <laughs> so that to me, he, after reading the riot act, yeah, yeah. what a great idea. I'm just going to remove myself. They haven't seen me and it's play It's off. like the kids of 
you've told the kids you'll you know you'll ban the iPad if they yeah. do something, and then later in the night you realise if I ban the iPad, yeah. then I have to talk to them. <laughs> that's going to blow up in my face. Yeah, and you so, so you just like ignore them. Anyway, there you go. So this is Miller's like but he's playing with these legends, you know, Bob Pratt, Jack Dyer. Knows all the top cricketers. Everything is looking absolutely yes. amazing for Keith Miller. At this point, his sporting career is completely overturned by World War Two, which is what a rude interruption! A rude interruption. The worst Dewey. timing. It was just for him. It was just yeah. he was about to break about out. To, this was going to be it. In Australia, because they were very much still part of the British Empire at this point, yeah. and really saw themselves as British. He signs up. He joins um, the Army Reserve. He's assigned to the 4th Reserve Motor Transport Company and he has to start reporting for training. Now, Miller has always been a nonconformist. Yes. He does not take orders well <laughs> and he likes to have fun. Yeah. And so suddenly he's having clashes with authority. The Army is really a very bad place for Keith Miller it's, in many it's, ways. It's not ideal for him. He loves a drink. He loves women. He's tall and good-looking. He's physically strong, so he's not scared of yes. anyone. He hates bullies or authority yeah. because he's got this underdog mentality. And there's a bit of that going on. And he's suddenly working being the yelled at in the army. <laughs> but uh, so he soon gets a nickname, Dusty, okay. known for his ability to like for fist fights. So he's suddenly in the army. He's getting fights regularly and things like that, right? <laughs> He's granted leave, though, to go play interstate cricket because despite the war going on, they haven't yet cancelled yes. cricket to keep the morale up. And he starts playing very well. And at this point, they give him a few chances to bowl. And he plays one game and Bradman's playing against him and he sees him bowl. He takes one wicket for 24 and six overs. But his pace and lift is so impressive. Bradman notes, I reckon this guy could actually bowl yeah. as well and just puts it in the back of his head. He plays the 941 VFL season two while the war's going on and while he's in the Army Reserve. He plays in defence and attack. He plays 16 games. He kicks 28 goals. He kicks eight in one match. This shows yeah. you how good he is. In one game, he's playing Melbourne. He strikes his boss, Percy Beams, <laughs> with a raised elbow <laughs> at the start of the match. <laughs> so there's his manager. Oh, that's hilarious. Percy doesn't hold any grudges. Keith says, St Kilda must have been pretty weak at that time because... I played fullback, centre-half, back, centre, centre-half forward and full forward for them. He comes second in their best and fairest of the season. His season has also been cut short. He's recalled to duty. He continues to get discipline problems and in, he's asked to leave the Army Reserve on the 8th of November 1941. There you go. During wartime. During wartime. We're going to have to ask you to leave. Yeah. It's all hands on deck, not so you. You're out. So he and his friend, they decide... Why don't we join the Navy? Navy might be more at <laughs> style. So they go down to the Navy office and Miller is accepted and yeah. then they do physical and look at all your forms and stuff and his friend is not accepted. And so Miller says, well, if you're not taking my mate, I'm not yeah. joining and rips up the form in front of there the officer, go. storms out and goes around the corner to the Royal Australian Air Force recruiting office and he enlists to them. He has to wait a little while, but in early 942, this is after Pearl Harbor has happened, he's called up. He's sent to the number four initial training school in Victor Harbor for South Australia. Yes. He says this is, it was incredibly boring. He looked forward to weekend leave, which only came once a month. So most of the time he's just on this army base in sure. South Australia board. 
They had a drill instructor who's redheaded, so they called him Sergeant Bluey. <laughs> <laughs> and he was known to often just cancel leave if people did anything. He was if they mucked up on the drill field, any disciplinary Jeez. action. So they were all very nervous of him because uh, they didn't want their leave canceled. It's a reign of terror. It's a reign of terror. They hell hated this guy. They did a normal dr- rifle drill, and then the sergeant at the end, he, you know, they're doing all the bayonets, they're doing all rifle drills and stuff, and then at the end, he says, "I want one of you trainees to volunteer, and you've got to try and disarm me of my rifle." And everyone stands there going, "No way," because yeah. we don't want to get our leave cancelled. Not falling for that. And he says, "Come on, you have to do it. I need a volunteer. One of you got to do it." And they're all just standing there. And then he keeps yelling at them. And finally, a voice speaks up and goes, "I'll do it." And it's Miller. And Miller steps forward and he says, "I'm reminding you." He says to the sergeant, "You promise, no matter what happens, you're not cancelling our weekend leave." And the sergeant goes, "Absolutely not." So they start to circle each other. Miller grabs him with one hand, trips him with one of his foot. While with his other hand ripping the rifle off him, the yeah. sergeant ends up on the ground because Miller is this huge, very strong, yeah, very coordinated athlete, champion who athlete. likes fighting. Yeah, so the sergeant suddenly on the ground and yells at Miller, "You tripped me!" And he said, "I disarmed you, didn't I, Sergeant?" <laughs> That's the point. Yeah, Sergeant Bluey gets back up, grabs his rifle, and he says, "All right, do it again." So Miller goes, well, you promised me you're not going to yeah. cancel my leave. He goes, no, no. They start circling again and straight again Miller grabs him, trips him, <laughs> rips the rifle off him and this time he puts his heavy-duty boot on the sergeant's Please. clean shirt yes. and leaves a mark. The instructor jumps up and goes, your leave, weekend leave is cancelled, Miller. You're on guard duty. And the whole recruits no. all say, that's not fair, sergeant. He says, shut up or I'll cancel the rest of your leave. And so Miller yeah. says, well, this is no good. And so he appeals to the camp officer who Absolutely. runs the camp. He's summoned to the um, guy who heads up the camp um, room with uh, the sergeants there as well. And the sergeant tells the officer what happened. What happened. And the officer looks at the sergeant and Miller and says, I don't think it matters how you were disarmed, sergeant. And he said, I'm not too concerned about your boot touch the sergeant said." either like who cares and so he gave the instructor a dressing down put him on guard duty and told miller he's free to go <laughs> oh, i love a happy ending so after this miller is sent to america for further training right. and he's going to be learning how to fly and all this sort of stuff and he's drinking with a mate bill young who's a guy from broken hill whose nickname is pissy because he <laughs> likes to get drunk and at the bar of the Boston Avery Hotel and staying next to them is a man and he's drinking a dry martini with an olive in it. Now, Miller and Bill Young have never seen a martini, right? They come from Australia's a backwater really at this point, beer and maybe wine and and rum, you know. So they go, what's that? And the man says, you know, oh, well, you know, he starts explaining the soaked olive and what a martini is. So they they order a martini with him and they're getting along like a house on fire with this Pissy guy. would be loving this. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 and Miller is gregarious, charming. So Absolutely. Every, you know, the guy says, oh, I notice you got Australian badges. They say we're RAAF, uh, the Air Force for Australia. We're en route to the UK. And the man's name's Carl Wagner and he's a stockbroker and from a very rich Boston family. 
And he says, oh, my wife is from Hull in Yorkshire, you know, you're going over there. He says, why don't you come home with me <laughs> and have a few more drinks and meet her and hang out? Wow. And so they come back and he's got this huge house. They live on a 27-acre property. That's how rich they are. Yeah. And Miller meets Carl's 25-year-old daughter, Peg. Oh, dear. Who's a secretary at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and she admires him straight away because he's a very good-looking man yeah. and very charming. And they basically hook up. And in the next uh, three weeks, he hangs out with her before he's about to ship off to the UK. Yes. And they fall in love and he proposes to her and she says, yes. Wow. And then he takes off to England for the war. Do they get married? Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a long way down the track. Because <laughs> he's got to go fight But not war. by the time he's left. No. Nah. But hang on, but they're engaged? They're engaged. So he's now engaged. Well, so he's spoken for. <laughs> he is spoken for and can I just say he's deployed to Bournemouth in England and within two minutes he has a girlfriend. Yeah, thought so. And... He's got girlfriends on girlfriends. Too. Yeah, let's so just get that out Keith there. Keith Miller's son said after his death that his dad was no angel and made Shane Warne look tame. <laughs> so Keith Miller, you got to remember, Keith Miller exists in a time where the reporters yeah. did not, re like, report on affairs. Very, You know, it was really just not the done thing. So he was every night pretty much going out with different women. Yes. He had he had a black book. He had girlfriends in every town. Okay. So, yeah, Faith. He's, he's he, living the dream He's for a young man, good-looking rooster. Yeah, and he, he does yeah. not let the fact that he's – and he's on cricket tour with pre-internet, pre-everything. Like yeah. word doesn't get around like now you'd, know you'd have a – I getting hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fit. So he is deployed to Bournemouth in England where he's training and this is where they're really starting to do like real right. serious flying. He becomes friends with a guy called, uh, he's an English guy, Gus Glendinning. And Gus was a medium height guy. And one quiet afternoon they're in the mess, Miller's not in there, and there's four aircrew playing cards and reading books and drinking beer at the bar and then one of the guys is a big guy, he's on a losing streak and he's getting nasty. And so he yells at Gus, go upstairs and get my pack of cards from the cupboard of my room and then the game continues and Gus hasn't done it. Yeah. He says, he turns to Gus and says, if you don't get the cards, I'll knock your block off. And Gus is not as that big a guy yeah, and this sure. guy's huge. But Miller just happens to walk in at this point and Miller walks straight up to the guy and says, if you ever lay a hand on him, I'll break your bloody neck. <laughs> and, and so Gus says, I suddenly realised I had at least one mate Yep. In the Air Force. The big guy backs down immediately because Miller has a reputation sure. of going off. This is where Miller, though, suddenly develops something which everyone calls for the rest of his life Miller's luck. Mm. He is the most luckiest man in the history of the world. I mean, we did Lucky Baldwin the yeah. other week. He is possibly more lucky than Lucky Baldwin in that he cheats death. Like you would not believe. Yeah. So one Friday night, they're all meant to go out. Every Friday night they would go to the Carlton Hotel in Bournemouth and drink after the RAF place. Um, and Miller was asked to go play for the um, RAAF cricket team in London. So he's given leave to go yes. do that. And he comes back that later on and he finds the town's barricaded because there's been a German air raid and a German fighter had strafed the church next to the hotel and it, the church spied fell onto the front bar and it killed eight of his mates. And it was only because he'd gone to play cricket. That he didn't. That he wasn't there. And he says, this. it starts to dawn on him that the war is like 
mm. doesn't make is happening and doesn't make a lot of sense and yeah. it's luck if you're yeah. going to die or not. For the next 50 years, he goes back to England and spends time with a relative of each of his mates. So he's very loyal yes. in that way. Another time, he's at London's Putney Bar and he, had, he was on leave and he was meant to go catch up with a girlfriend. Yes. And he decides, I'm drinking with my mates. I'm, I'm not going to head back. I'll just keep drinking. Yeah. So he keeps drinking. And then he finds out the next day, the girlfriend probably pretty annoyed, yeah. but he finds out the next day when he wakes up that a V1 missile has hit the theatre and killed a lot of the people in the theatre. And he suddenly goes, so one time I don't go to the pub and something falls on the pub. Another yes. time I stay at the pub yeah. There is, n and I live. There is no reason to this. Sure. And he begins to think, I could die any day. Yep. And this affects him for a long, long time. While he's training, as a time where he almost has to make an emergency landing in a, a bow fighter. He uh, narrowly misses a hangar by centimetres and almost kills himself. Another time he's forced to make an emergency landing on a plane and then it's repaired after him and the next pilot to fly it is killed when it fails. So Good he's Lord. suddenly realising... He is dodging. He's right in the middle of it. This is And this is just training. He hasn't yeah. even got to the war yet. I mean, but more people died training for D-Day than at, on D-Day. Okay. So this yeah. gives you a sense of how dangerous this is. He starts to get into a bit of trouble. He gets charged with eight offences for a night of drunken madness. <laughs> but he escapes with a fine because someone likes him. He's starved of classical music, which he's obsessed by. Yes. And he books a seat uh, in London to see Judy Menheim, the famous violinist with the London Symphony Orchestra, and the bass refuses his request to go see it. And so Miller walks out anyway and goes, comes back and his commanding officer says, I can get kick you out of the yeah. Air Force for this, is terrible, and tells him to go away and goes, I'm going to think of your punishment. And Miller thinks this is it, I'm going to be thrown out of the Air Force. Mm. His commanding officer then says, I'll let you off if you play for my cricket team on the weekend. <laughs> so he gets out right. of that too. He does officer training and he's sent on a Royal Navy destroyer as part of an exchange program. And while he is, they're attacked by a German U-boat. He manages to survive and they sink the U-boat. But he's just having... Yeah, these close calls. Close calls. Constantly, close. it's around him. It's around him. In March 1945, Miller is deployed to the uh, RAF station in Great Massingham in Norfolk and he's assigned to the 169 Squadron flying mosquito fighter bombers. And so he starts taking part in missions. He's targeting mainland Europe. They're attacking the V1 and the V2, the giant missiles yes. that the Nazis have built. Mm -hmm. he, they're attacking those test sites. Another night when he was coming back from an operation in France, he misjudged the landing. And, and almost crashes it. And this is where his back starts to get very stuffed. Right. Which will affect his cricket in the future. When he crashed the plane and rode off the plane in, in one of the accidents of, on a crash landing, he got out and the ground crew rush up and he says to the ground crew as he gets out of the plane, nearly stumps drawn that time, gents. An hour later he's playing soccer with his mates. <laughs> In May, his squadron's deployed in what's called Operation Firebash. It's to attack the Westerland airfield, which is in the island of Silt in the North Sea. And they're fitted with basically bombs that also have a tank attached to them full of napalm because the Americans right. have invented napalm sure. in World War II, even though it's famous from Vietnam. And the idea is you drop this bomb with napalm attached and it just 
ignites the napalm sure. it goes everywhere burns for ages and all that sort of stuff so they're told for this airfield they've got to blow up the buildings around the airfield and they've got to go in incredibly low like 125 meters sure. off the ground miller's coming in and they're all shooting at him and he a spotlight's on him it's at night so they can all see him yeah. manages gets his bombs off takes up and then realizes one of the bombs has not come off and he radios ahead and says one of the bombs didn't go off and I can't, I'm pressing the button and yeah. they don't want you to land with these bombs, right? Yeah, of course. Because it's quite dangerous yeah, and very flammable. Imagine. He says, what should we do? And they said, look, because the plane's also unstable. He's got this weight on one wing and not on the other, mm -hmm. but it won't release. Yeah. And so they say, you're just going to have to try and lay, land it. And so he brings it in and it's a very bumpy landing, but it manages. he manages to land. He gets out and he's like, what a relief. It didn't blow up. Mm. And then one of the ground crew comes up and says, where's the tank? Where's the bomb that's meant to be attached to your thing? He goes, it's right on the wing. And they go, no, it's not. And then they look around for it and they found that it actually has come off just as he's landed. Wow. And they said they cannot believe that it didn't, it didn't explode. And the commanding officer said it was a miracle it didn't explode. I just don't understand it. And he turns to it and Miller just goes, Miller's luck. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. is the whole thing. Basically, at this point, the war's coming to an end. Miller's commanding officer is a guy called Neville Reeves who um, has a bit of a air hero himself in the Middle East in the World War II mm -hmm. at the start. And he quite likes Miller but also knows Miller is like a bit of a law unto himself. Sure. One time he gets Miller and others to take them on tours of the bombing damage, like important people. Yes. And this is after the Germany have been defeated. And Reeves is leading a formation of seven aircraft on the round trip of its three and a half hours to go look at the Ruhr Valley yep. and all this sort of stuff. And they return to base and Miller has broken off from formation and hasn't landed. And then he lands a bit later and Reeves goes up to him and goes, where have you been? And Miller says, oh, I wanted to fly over the city of Bonn so I went and did that. And they, he said, why Bonn? He said, because it's the birthplace of Beethoven. <laughs> Because he's just a huge classical music. He's a law unto himself. He's a law. Reeves is actually what an amazing character. Yeah, he's Mil got everything. Miller goes Love okay. Uh, another time, uh, Miller and his friend Gus Glendinning are asked to test a plane together, but they've been drinking at a lunch. They're right. really drunk. Rather than not take it out, neither wants the other to fly it. One's going to be a passenger. One's going to fly a flight. <laughs> They're both going, you're too drunk, I'll fly. I'll and the it. other one goes, no, you are, I'll drive. They're both yeah. probably pretty drunk. So they flip a coin for it. Gus gets to fly. Miller urges him on as Glendinning flies on the coast and he fuzzes a beach 100 feet or 30 metres above the beach, causing sunbathers to run for cover. They're just <laughs> doing this for fun. Yeah. They do a few low swoops like this and then fly back to their base. In the mess that night, the squadron leader comes in and says, <laughs> I was at the beach. <laughs> Who of who you was that? were buzzing the beach? And they all deny. And you ask Glendinning and Miller, who are the most likely targets. They go, not us, sir. And he said, we couldn't get the marking, but the plane did like look like one of ours. And he said, paused and he said, looked at Gus and says, you sure it wasn't you, Glendinning? And Glendinning <laughs> says, I swear to God it wasn't me. And the commanding officer goes, well, don't do it again and walks out. <laughs> <laughs> Miller once also. What a time! Oh yeah, you know, and this is having like adults. 
and, and sorting it out in, a, in yeah. the way it should be sorted out. Well, these guys have all lost heaps of mates. They've gone through absolute hell. They know what real – and the war has ended it. in Europe at this point. It's But the thing that's hanging over all this is it's a very big chance Miller's going to be sent to fight the Japanese. Yep. So the war in Japan, you've got to remember, they don't know about nuclear bombs yes. that are coming. They don't know any of this. So they are like – there is a real sense that we might not be alive next yeah. week, right? Um, Miller once also buzzed Royal Ascot Racecourse and was <laughs> reprimanded by his commanding officer calling him an utter disgrace to the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> oh Despite all this, Wing Commander Neville Reeves said of Keith as a pilot, he was one of my finest, perhaps the bravest and most willing I had under my command. He wouldn't be alive today, but for what we all came to know as Miller's luck, he kept taking the most fantastic risks and they all came off. Yep. During the war, Miller has been allowed to play cricket off and on, you know, when it when there was time. Mm. And for morale, they encourage this, especially against they're usually military teams. Yep. So it'd be Air Force versus sure. something else, things like that. He met at this point in a match between the Dominions, so all the uh, Australia, South Africa, yep. the colonies, yes. against an English representative side. He meets a batsman by the name of Dennis Compton, who goes on to be very sure. famous for England. Compton is basically an English version of Miller. He played for Arsenal in football, mm -hmm. a fantastic winger, yep. and he played for England in 75 tests. So he is like Miller, is physically gifted. Yeah. He's also a massive ladies' man. He's married three times in his life. Yep. And he's a massive drinker. And him and Miller go on to become oh, no. athlete best of friends. Well. But the first time Compton is also known for being incredibly absent-minded. It was legendary. Like he just didn't pay attention to anything. He once turned up at an Old Trafford test against South Africa. This is after the war without his – he'd forgotten his kit bag with all these <laughs> like bats and yeah, everything. Yeah. So he's got no bat and everyone's like, what are you going to do? So he sauntered into the uh, Old Trafford Museum. So he goes in there and gets an antique bat off the display <laughs> and he went, goes on to score 158 runs in the first innings and, and 71 in the second and then puts the bat back in the museum. <laughs> Everything about this is wonderful. Another time, Peter Parafet, who's a Middlesex and England batsman, this is much later in Compton's life, has been asked to speak at Compton's 70th birthday. Right. Uh, they're getting ready for it. A lady calls and says, I, I demand to speak to Dennis. And, and Peter's like, who are you? And she says, it doesn't matter who I am. Put Dennis on the line. And he's like, says to Dennis, some woman wants to talk to you. And he's like, who is it? He goes, I don't know. And Dennis says, I don't want to speak to her. And the woman says... Put him on now. And this is the, like they're getting ready for his 70th birthday. So finally Dennis goes, all right, put her on. And the woman says, Dennis, it's your mother. You're not 70. You're only 69. <laughs> She's found out about the party and then he's, got it, he's got the date wrong. He's got his age wrong. So that's what he's like, right? So Compton in his first time, he hasn't met Mill at this point and yeah. He's batting and he's doing very well and Miller, he's about to face Miller. There's still wartime. There's still wartime. Yeah. This is the uh, Dominions versus an yes. English representative side. Compton has not met Miller and Miller is going to bowl. Now, Miller's not a bowler at this stage. He's a batsman. Yeah. So Compton watches him and says Miller doesn't mark his run, like, like they mark their running. He doesn't do that. He just saunters out to some yeah. point. He doesn't even roll his arm over to warm up or anything, right? Yeah. So Compton likes, who this guy? So he turns to the Dominion's keeper, Stan Size Me. What does this guy fellow do? What sort of bowler is he? And somebody says, 
he's not really a bowler, he just chances his arm, which is yeah. true. Yeah. So he's not trying to game him. It's true. Miller is not known as a bowler yeah. at this stage. So Miller comes in off eight paces, which is very short for a delivery, and he's down the first delivery. And Compton says, so I'm rather nonchalant when I take guard. I'm thinking, sure. okay, this guy's not really thinking. He says he takes his short run up, let's go the ball, and, he, and Compton says, my hand stands on end. This is the fastest ball I've faced since I played Australia's Ernie McCormick at 9.38. The ball goes for four buys over my left shoulder and past Stan standing on the wicket. So I do meet Keith Miller. <laughs> now, the wars made Keith worry less about cricket because so many of his mates have died and all this. Michael Parkinson, when interviewing him years later, says, how did you handle the pressure in cricket? And Miller famously responded, pressure is a Messerschmitt up your ass. Playing cricket is not, Correct. which is his famous quote. One example of this more casual approach to cricket came when in the final days of the Australian service team playing uh, Nottinghamshire at Trent Bridge, it became obvious that no result could be obtained. It was a bit boring. And Keith had his third batting partner come out. Keith was batting and doing quite well. And he said to him, this is all getting bloody boring. Let's have some fun. His partner says, how? He says, when we run, well, we'll call yes when we mean no and vice versa. We'll completely bamboozle the fieldsman. <laughs> and so they do this for a while. They score 34 runs while when they're going to take a run, they say no. When they're going to not take a run, they say yes. <laughs> Then Keith called no when he actually means no. <laughs> <laughs> and his unfortunate partner was left standing mid-pitch. And Keith says, oh, well, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> so this is his new attitude. He's, he loves playing. Another one is this gives you an idea how crazy it was. One time, this is where he's got this view of life is stupid. Mm. One time he's actually playing at Lord's. And he reaches his century, and at the time, the moment he reaches century, a V1 flying bomb lands just nearby. Right. This is a bit earlier, yes. so he like he's used to. He's like, I could have died yeah, a thousand times. It's coming. So he takes none of it very seriously. One time, he's playing against a guy who's an accurate new ball bowler. They're all still in the yes. army. All these guys. He's an army colonel called JWA Stevenson, and he beats Keith with an all ends up sort of a leg cutter. Doesn't hit the wicket, but it's he's clearly yeah. beaten. And and so he says, that was a good one, our Keith. And Keith comes out, towards, walks towards him and pats the spot where the board landed with the bat, tosses back his hair and grins and just grins at him. <laughs> Stevenson said, I bowled him an almost identical ball the next one. He pulled drove it across the full flight of, of the tower on the tavern, narrowly missing the clock, and smiled and called back, that was an even better one, huh, Colonel? <laughs> So the war is over, Keith is in England yes. and we might leave it here but to set up the next stage, what is about to be played is a series of tests. The war in Japan is still going on but they decide, the Australians and the English, we're going to have a series of tests between an Australian team yes. and an English team. We're going to call them the victory tests and it's a celebration of the war being over but also of getting cricket back and happening yeah. and returning to normal. A bit like, you know, you get this sense of we want life to get back to sure. normal as fast as possible. And these tests in which Keith will play will make Miller's name both in England and Australia when we return. I cannot wait. This is just a great story, a great energy, a larger-than-life character. It's on a big stage. He's just remarkable. I cannot wait to see where this is going. Thank you, Titus O'Reilly. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, 
Join our membership program, Bizarre Plus. And one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. This is from Richard Anderson, who commented on our YouTube channel. He just watched an uh, episode we did last year, actually, but, you know, often people catch up later on. Yeah. The Philadelphia Eagles wild man, Tim Rosovich. One of my favourite episodes. Which we loved. We if you haven't listened to that, go listen to it. He's written, and this is great feedback, I was a high school teammate and friends with Tim. Okay. He was a very intelligent young man who chose USC over Stanford and Notre Dame. On graduation night, I watched him drink a glass of vodka and then eat the glass. (laughs) 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 What is going on? Tim Rosevich. You know what? Some episodes we do, I wish we could almost go back and do again. Yeah. Because it was just, that was just such a delight of an episode. Genuinely funny, creative, wonderful. He said, I reconnected at our 50th high school reunion and he was as humble and friendly as he was in school. He suffered from great memory loss from too many concussions. I have many more stories I could add to these. I reckon we should try and reach out to Richard. Absolutely. Wouldn't it? There would be a, a good bonus ep one day. Yeah, that would be a good bonus ep for the you members. You get him in here. God, that was – because when we were talking about this the other day, it came up because you watched Roxanne, the Steve Martin movie. Which, which I Which Tim's brother is, is a star in. And he's fantastic. It's a great movie. And he's, it's a genuinely funny performance. He's sort of a simple to – like a jock. He's yeah, kind yeah. of a jock guy, the head of the fire, so who's – doesn't you know it's not the brightest spark yeah but it's done so beautifully and lovingly and yeah he, he was also in top gun in top he gun was, he was Iceman's uh offsider he's we should interview him about his brother yeah they were an amazing family actually like absolutely amazing and that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our bizarre plus program simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bizarreplus.com